So, Mark. Yes. This week's movie came out in a window of our childhood. I think you were 12, I was 13, roughly, when something weird was pretty consistent in the film industry. Okay. That weird thing was bad video game tie-ins to every major theatrical release. Oh my god, what an era. Like, in addition to just the bad video games, we have the DVD-ROM, where you could put the DVD in the computer and play a video game. That was really important to me, because when I bought my used Xbox, like, two years after the 360 came out, so I was, like, way behind on the technology, I could take my Revenge of the Sith DVD and use it to play two whole levels of Battlefront 2. Nice. That's actually... That's a great game. Pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's a good game, but I so not really what I started talking about. Yeah, <laughs> I remember like a Lion King or an Aladdin DVD ROM game that was pretty bad. Which stinks because the Aladdin game for the Sega Genesis was incredible. That was great. That was a good game. Yeah. I think the one of my least favorite video game tie-ins was honestly the Harry Potter series. I found okay, those some of those games, are good. Some are good, but I found them to be just the early ones. I think they just hadn't figured out the spell mechanic yet. Well, what platform were you playing on? Because the interesting thing about the Harry Potter video game franchise is that for like the first three, the game was wildly different depending on what platform you played on. I was probably playing on PS2. Okay, see, I played those on PC, and the game's completely different. Yeah, I I played it on PC, and I think I had a Game Boy version of the chamber of secrets wildly different pc was obviously much better than the game boy one but yeah but like i had the pc and xbox chamber of secrets and on xbox there was like a whole sequence where you did denome the garden which was too boring so i didn't bother to finish it whereas the pc ones always started with you at hogwarts just like doing your stuff the second one is probably the best one actually because you could rack up money by dueling kids yeah i just remember them being so disappointing i want to say that part of that is colored by the dvd rom game which, <laughs> which was is truly really bad but i don't think i enjoyed those at all and i stopped playing them i've heard the later ones are better but i just gave up on the series now i brought up this topic because our guest revealed that he has actually played the mission impossible 3 video game boy what a trip i have a distinct memory of little dogs being involved as like one of the henchmen type of characters where can we clarify what platform this is on this was on the game boy advance yikes and there were dogs involved and you can watch this movie and not see any dogs it is very confusing why they insisted on dogs rather than i guess there would be obvious problems if they included some of the the uh residents of the vatican in the uh, people you need to fight. Well, that did. That would be, well, that's <laughs> super awesome to fight the Swiss Guard. <laughs> that did not stop Assassin's Creed 2, I think, where you hand to hand combat the Pope. <laughs> this is the second week in a row. Oh, no, it's not because we're out of sequence. We talk about Assassin's Creed twice this month on the show. I had a uh, professor in undergrad who uh, was a historical reference for Assassin's Creed 2, and she said the maps were very high quality and. That was it. That's I love Assassin's Creed 2, and I just also got so much joy out of just ending the game by just punching the Pope repeatedly in the city. <laughs> it's such a good Apple. game. It's so good. This is what I've been doing all summer, by the way, is just playing through a bunch of Assassin's Creed games. Also, to go down the rabbit hole that we mentioned, there is an Assassin's Creed movie, which is not very good. With Michael Fassbender. It does. Yeah, I, it has Michael Fassbender. I kind of want to watch it. I think it sounds really bad, but also interesting. Interesting is a good word. I felt better when I found out that Michael Fassbender was not playing 
Altair and was in fact playing a white person. Like it felt less whitewashy. He's playing Ezio, which was convenient for me because they put out a nice set of all those games around the time the movie came out. So I could scoop that up. Yeah. If I remember correctly, I played not a Mission Impossible game based directly off the movies, but there was a PlayStation 2 game that we definitely rented from Blockbuster and played. And I looked it up, and I think it's called Mission Impossible Operation Surma from 2003. I don't remember anything about it. between Mission Impossibles 2 and 3. Right. I bet what that was, actually, was this movie got delayed a bunch of times, and I bet the game was already deep enough into development that they were just like, well, the movie still hasn't been made, but we have this game. I mean, it's also a franchise. It's similar to Bond. Like, Bond games are not always directly based off of the movies. The Alien franchise is like that, too. So this one, I am on the Wikipedia page, and apparently you are dealing with the country of Ugaria, which is <laughs> near <laughs> bordering the Black Sea. So I can't imagine what they're referencing with that name. And... Ving Rames is providing the voice of Luther Stickle in the movie, you know or what? in the video game. Ving Rames has openly talked about this franchise and how the thing he always says is like, Tom Cruise decided to make me a millionaire. Because especially in the early movies, like Ethan Hunt is the only character who comes back from movie to movie, except for Luther Stickle, who is in every one of them. They're the only two actors that are in all of them. And that's what Ving Rames always says. It's like, Tom Cruise decided to make me a millionaire. Now that I'm looking at this page, this might have been the game that I played. And if this yeah. is the case, I'm yeah. sorry for misleading you, but there were definitely dogs in this I was going to say, is there like a picture of a dog on the box? Is that how you're telling? No, the cover art does look very familiar. And also, Mission Impossible 3 for the Game Boy Advance search takes me to Operation Surma. Okay. I also like that Tom Cruise does not let them use his likeness in the game. Like, it is, he is a very distinct looking Ethan Hunt. It's weird that they insist on using Ethan Hunt then if they can't use his likeness because there's no reason that it can't be a different IMF agent. Isn't the name Ethan Hunt from the TV show though? No, Ethan Hunt is a creation of the movies and then like in the first movie, John Voight plays the character from the TV show as Ethan Hunt's boss. Oh, I had no idea. I was not aware of the backstory for Mission Impossible 3 going in. I had totally forgotten what happens. I have been re-watching all of these this summer after watching all of them last summer. Let me tell you, great way to spend a summer. Yeah, I haven't, and I it's haven't been seen fun them in a I while. I never watched them in sequence before. I don't think I've ever watched them in sequence. Actually, I think when I was like, when this one was coming out, I think I watched all three with my parents. Maybe I was a bit older, like a couple years after this one came out, but I don't remember anything from them. I do remember this one best. I think. Watching this, I remembered some parts from when I watched it in, like, middle school. I saw two for the first time this summer, and it's no good, but one is well worth a revisit. That movie kind of rules. One is great. Two, I don't remember much of, and I think the two things that I remember are the, the masks they use, they overuse in two, and there's a cool, like, rock climbing scene at the beginning. Yes. And then yes. I don't remember much. Tom Cruise, like, free solos some buttes. Tom Cruise also has really gross hair. I do remember that. So two would probably be the best one for our podcast because it focuses so heavily on his relationship with Tandy Newton. But the reason I didn't want to do that one is because I think it fundamentally misunderstands what a Mission Impossible movie is and particularly who Ethan Hunt is. Because the thing that makes Ethan Hunt different from James Bond is that Ethan Hunt isn't cool. And he's not really that independent. Like, he is a consummate company man, whereas James Bond is kind of a loner who works with 
MI6 more so. And so what Mission Impossible 2 does is it tries to make him this like sexy loner and it's just weird and it doesn't fit. I kind of do want to rewatch it after reading the Tandy Newton interview in Vulture in which she talks about watching a zit form on Tom Cruise's nose because it was growing so fast. The really wild thing that she says about that production in that interview, which is a great interview in Vulture, I think it's with Alex Young, Mm -hmm. is that she says John Woo kind of decided that to minimize the different distractions he was dealing with, he was going to direct as much of the movie as possible in Chinese. I think she even said that he pretended not to speak English during production. Yeah, just so that like he could focus in on what he was doing. And like, I get it, but buddy, you're directing the movie. You're directing actors. Like, you should have a relationship with them. So anyway, I was like, we should do Mission Impossible 3 instead because... Uh, you know, it's great. We get to talk about J.J. Abrams. We get to talk about my girlfriend, Michelle Monaghan. So there's a lot to work off. I particularly like the choice of uh, Mission Impossible 3 because I feel like Mission Impossible 2 is kind of the low point for the franchise. And then we have this nice redemption story where Mission Impossible 3 kicks it off. And with our technical difficulties last time, I feel like this is a great redemption movie for me. But it's only a partial redemption. We're going to get into this, but it has its own issues, and it's really not until Ghost Protocol that the franchise gets its legs again. And I think we should start the show so we can talk about Mission Impossible 3. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is a podcast dedicated to examining one of the most important, unimportant questions of our day, Namely, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what is there. And this week, we're rejoined by my good friend Tim Hankins to talk about probably the second most romantic installment in the Mission Impossible series, J.J. Abrams' Mission Impossible 3. Hello. All right. I gotta say it. Mission Impossible is like maybe the best action series it is a lot of fun i think it's the best in terms of embracing action and like effects and stuff because i love the mission impossible series they are much lighter on plot than other action movies they kind of realize they don't need as strong of a plot if the helicopter go boom i mean that's literally what they do these days with the christopher mcquarrie movies who directed five and six and is directing seven and eight is they come up with set pieces and then build a skeleton around them they're like all right we want to do a halo jump into a like swanky french party what would make us need to do that i love it or tom cruise needs to hang off an airplane how do we get that to happen it's also the kind of thing where like if you remember the awards campaign around the revenant and how it was all about like leonardo dicaprio actually ate buffalo for this and i was like i don't care about that he didn't have to do that don't tell me he did dumb things like that tell me the movie is good whereas for like Rogue Nation, the promotional campaign is Tom Cruise really hung off a plane. And I'm like, well, that I want to see because that's going to be on the screen. Yeah, Tom Cruise does a lot of his own stunts. And I'm pretty sure he actually like got some cracked ribs from some stunts in this one I was reading. Just yes. because like he jumps off a building and then jumps out of a building. So there's a lot going on that we see on screen. Yes, Tom Cruise, noted lunatic, famously does his own stunts. To the point that for the helicopter sequence at the end of Mission Impossible Fallout, like, he is flying that helicopter. 
Henry Cavill, of course, is not because he is an actor. Uh, <laughs> but like to do that, Tom Cruise had to get enough hours. So he flew to set every day building up to that in Fallout. And he like flew a helicopter to all the meetings he had as a producer. What a waste of resources. <laughs> like that's <laughs> so much fuel just being wasted on his hubris. Like, some people are already trained, and you don't need to spend thousands and thousands of dollars on gas so that he can just fly to meetings. I don't know. Yeah. No, I think you have a point. Look, I think he's giving a very good, like, actor's performance in those scenes. But when he's not in the shot, does it need to be him? Probably not. I think re-watching this... One thing that, especially having seen Fallout more recently, that I appreciate about the later movies is the growing presence of the team. This one probably feels more like a transition to it, too, but I feel like the later movies give the other people on his team a lot more to do. And by bringing back some familiar faces, it allows them to do it more. But just giving, you know, Luther more things to do and Simon Pegg gets more scenes and you get to form a relationship with other people that aren't Ethan. I think that's one thing this movie starts to do that I really like about the later ones. Right, like the fact that Julia comes back in Fallout. Right. Yeah, we see her. I think that's an interesting thing where, like we said earlier, these movies just trade out supporting casts even to the point that until Alec Baldwin comes in in Rogue Nation, there's a different... IMF boss in every movie. It's Henry Zerny in the first one, Anthony Hopkins in the second one, Lawrence Fishburne in this one, and Tom Wilkinson in Ghost Protocol. But I was listening to the blank check Mission Impossible stuff, which as of the time of we're recording, only Mission Impossible 1 has come out. And they made a point that I think is interesting, which is like the first big sequence of the first Mission Impossible Ethan Hunt's entire team is murdered. And he spends the rest of that movie like kind of freaking out like hallucinating his team in front of him and trying to get revenge on their killer. And kind of then the idea of the franchise, the arc of the franchise being like Ethan Hunt, a guy who, because of that like horrifying betrayal by John Voight, he like has a hard time. And it's the rest of the franchise is like him becoming more and more open to having meaningful relationships with other people where like in two, he is this weird loner acting out of character here. He's starting to get that crew and like, by Fallout, he has his guys that he is willing to, like, go to unbelievable lengths for. I do want to say, while we're speaking of Lawrence Fishburne, he is just chewing the scenery in this movie, and I love it. He's doing what you pay him for. At one point, he says, it's unacceptable that chocolate makes you fat, but I've still eaten my fair share of it, and I have no idea what that means. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It sounds good. He has a lot of one-offs that, like, you you need to kind of unpack to understand what he's saying. Like, he made the Invisible Man joke about being more like H.G. Wells, and yeah, there's there's a lot of words that he says. I love it so much. He's one of my favorite spy bosses in a movie that's not Alice and Janney in Spy. So I think we need to start, like, forcing some some structure around this conversation because we're going to be talking for a while. So, like I said, this is Mission Impossible 3. And I think the franchise is significant because, in a lot of ways, the Mission Impossible franchise is Tom Cruise. The first Mission Impossible is the first movie that he produced himself in his Cruise-Wagner partnership with Paula Wagner. And he plays a really big role in the shaping of these movies. 
To the point that, like, these days, like, the only movies he makes are Mission Impossible or Mission Impossible lookalikes. Like, I was going through his filmography, and unless you count Valkyrie and American Maid, he's only made one drama since Mission Impossible 3, and it was the next year. So, like, basically all he does after this are action movies and then, like, a handful of comedies, you know, your Tropic Thunder kind of things, which he did to, like, try to prove he wasn't a maniac. And then, of course, Rock of Ages, which is its own thing. But, like, this increasingly is the Tom Cruise brand. This is the Tom Cruise who announced this spring that he is going to shoot a movie in space. What a guy. Every interview you read about Tom Cruise just makes sense. It just tracks. He is so out there and trying so hard to prove that he's not, but it's just, like, he is what people say, I think. He is the kind of person who gives off the sense that, like, he is an alien doing an incredible job of impersonating a human. I think that makes a lot of sense. The pictures of Nicole Kidman after her divorce from Tom Cruise really tell you a lot about what you need to know about him, I think. I saw those and I was just like, I think I get it. (laughs) It is just pure exorbitant joy as she's leaving her lawyer's office with the divorce papers. Like, arms spread behind her. It's worth engaging with that, too, because Mission Impossible 3 comes out at a rough time for Tom Cruise, as much as anything can be a rough time for a fabulously wealthy white man. Because this movie comes out one year after Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds. And it was during the War of the Worlds press tour that Tom Cruise famously jumped up and down on Oprah Winfrey's couch, talking about how much he was in love with Katie Holmes who Cruz has never been able to quash rumors that she was basically found for him by Scientology, because it seems like that is probably what happened. I would believe it. Scientology is very powerful, and Tom Cruise likes that. I would believe basically anything they say about Scientology at this point. Right. There's kind of a sense that, like, after his relationship ends with Penelope Cruz, Scientology puts on a search for a new significant other and comes up with Katie Holmes. So he jumps up and down on Oprah's couch. That becomes this big viral thing in 2005. It's also around the War of the Worlds press tour that he lobbies the European Union to recognize Scientology as a religion, and he got in real hot water for criticizing psychology as pseudoscience and particularly coming down hard against the use of antidepressants. I watched the free Scientology welcome video. The one with him? No, so it's a different one. So it tells the story of L. Ron Hubbard. We watched it in the Scientology building right off Times Square, and it was truly hilarious how maudlin and over the top and melodramatic it was like the psychiatrists in it are essentially like mustache twirling top hat wearing villains and then l ron hubbard comes in trying to save the day from these evil psychiatrists so you're just like what is happening in this so a couple of years ago somebody leaked out a like internal scientology video of tom cruise talking about what it means to him to be a scientologist It's a pretty weird video. It's on YouTube. Scientology has tried to get it taken down and YouTube has refused saying that it's fair use. Understandably. And it's just Tom Cruise talking about how like when you're a Scientologist and you drive past a car in a crash, like, you know, like you are able to help those people because you are a Scientologist. And like, it's, it's pretty weird. It was filmed around the time of this movie, actually. Has Tom Cruise spent any time on their like prison boats? Not that I know of, but there are some rumors that he has used Sea Org people for labor. Yikes. Yeah, Tom Cruise is this troublesome figure because he is an incredibly electric actor, but is deeply entwined with a dreadful organization. It is kind of hard. Like, there are worse things to be involved in than Scientology, such this as is pretty high the, on the Klan. Bad things. <laughs> but it's not really... A, it's not a good thing. 
Yeah. It's definitely a very evil organization, but it's hard to, like, say I can't deal with people involved in Scientology, because then you lose, like, all movies. You lose Elizabeth Moss. You lose Elizabeth Moss. Who kind of gets a little bit of a a slide because she was raised in Scientology. Yeah, she doesn't have as much choice in the matter, because she has been a Scientologist since birth. Although, as long as we're talking about Scientology, we do have another Scientology connection in here, because our villain is played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, who stars in The Master. I need to see that movie still. It's on Netflix right now. Is it? Yeah. I I gotta check that out. Philip Seymour Hoffman's great in this movie, because he takes what could be like a very generic villain character and makes him awesome because he's the best actor alive he is incredibly intimidating without being like a he's not a particularly big guy he's not particularly like violent for most of it and when he threatens ethan's wife and life in the airplane it's like he's gonna do something right he has this air of menace it's like i don't know what you're going to do but i'm scared he is just incredible and he does not have as much screen time as i thought he would because he is such a presence in this movie which is helped by the fact that this movie does something that's different from the others in the franchise the other five mission impossible movies follow the bond formula where you start with like a preliminary mission that ends and then you go into the rest of the movie whereas this one starts in media res and then flashes back for most of the movie so we start with philip seymour hoffman doing his intimidating thing and then we jump back probably like three days to the engagement party this movie really takes place over the course of like four days it's yeah, insane. It, is, it is a jam-packed week it was the thing i was paying a lot of attention to because philip seymour hoffman gives tom cruise this 48 hour time limit to get the rabbit's foot and then tom cruise flies from Dulles to Shanghai. And I was like, that eats up so much of your time. And the thing is, like, they do acknowledge it and they pay attention to how much time is passing. But I was particularly aware of it because The Rise of Skywalker also introduces a time limit and then does nothing with it. Yeah, this one, it's like, they acknowledge how much time because he gets to Shanghai and then they're like, you have two hours left on your 48 hours. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, they set up, he calls with five seconds they, left. Yeah, they set up a two day time frame, and then he has two hours in terms of actually Because he spends doing the whole the time action. getting to Shanghai. Yeah, because you can't just get to Shanghai right away. I loved it. And I thought of Rise of Skywalker, of course, because this movie is the directorial debut of J.J. Abrams who I think we need to talk about now. This movie ties into Rise of Skywalker in another way, which is J.J. Abrams apparently loves to underuse Carrie Russell. She is good in this movie. I think she's good in Rise of Skywalker. And she's good in Rise of Skywalker, which begs the question, why are you not just making movies with Carrie Russell as much more important? Because she's clearly an incredible actor. And of course, it's worth noting that the abrams Carrie russell connection goes back to the fact that J.J. Abrams is the creator of Felicity. Is he? I had no idea about that. That makes it even more of a crime that he covered her hair in the entirety of Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, but maybe he just felt so burned by the way people reacted to Carrie Russell's haircut on Felicity that he felt like he didn't want to take any chances. Her hair is glorious, and the fact that it was covered throughout that whole movie, I was waiting for her to take her helmet off, and I was very disappointed that she never did. So Abrams is actually the third director hired for Mission Impossible 3. One of the things that's interesting about this franchise until Christopher McQuarrie comes on with Rogue Nation is that every movie is directed by a different person and it's kind of this canvas where they hire different directors and say like, do your version of a Mission Impossible movie. So the first one's Brian De Palma. The second one is John Woo, who allegedly directed most of it in Chinese. (laughs) And after that, they hired David Fincher to make the next one, like a post-Fight Club David Fincher. He dropped out over creative differences and they hired Joe Carnahan, 
who worked on the movie for like over a year. It had Kenneth Branagh as the villain as like a Timothy McVeigh kind of guy. And the supporting roles were a post-Matrix Carrie Ann Moss and post-Lost in Translation Scarlett Johansson. Carrie Ann Moss was replacing Tandy Newton, who said she did not want to come back. And then Carnahan quit in 2004 because he and Tom Cruise kept fighting over the tone of the movie. I think Carnahan wanted to make it much darker than the one we got. Which is still pretty dark. It is still pretty dark. And then according to interviews, Tom Cruise called Abrams after binging the first two seasons of Alias. Yeah. Which sounds plausible, except that I don't believe Tom Cruise watches TV. I don't see Tom Cruise doing anything except for just sitting in silence whenever he's not acting. Well, they just like him off. on a couch in the dark. Yeah. But then production had to wait because Abrams was committed to Lost, which he co-created and he wrote and directed the pilot, which helped to elevate him too. Because again, coming into this, he's never made a movie, but Lost was this gigantic hit, particularly its pilot. And during that period, like Branagh and Johansson and Carrie Ann Moss left to do other things. And Tom Cruise had to take a pay cut because Paramount threatened to shut them down. So that's where J.J. Abrams comes in as, like, this hotshot from TV where he had created Felicity, co-created Alias, and co-created Lost. And the Lost pilot is kind of like a movie. Right. In part because Disney was really worried that it wasn't going to take off or that it was going to be too expensive. So they were like, the pilot needs to work as a TV movie if we decide not to put it to series. If there's any one episode of TV where you're just like, yeah, I would give this man a movie. I think the lost pilot is definitely up there. So that's how Abrams gets in. Now he writes the screenplay along with Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orsi, who are guys you may not have heard of, but we need to talk about. Do either of you guys know Kurtzman and Orsi? No. I recognize their names. Okay. You probably do recognize their names because their filmographies are littered with, like, would-be franchises. So they wrote the two J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies, the first one of which is fantastic. The second one is at least kind of interesting. They wrote the first two Transformers movies. Similar situation. They wrote Cowboys and Aliens. Wow. What a movie. They wrote The Amazing Spider-Man 2, at which point they, especially Kurtzman, were put on as the architects of The Amazing Spider-Man cinematic universe. Because if you have seen The Amazing Spider-Man 2... What it is, is a nonsensical plot just shooting off tendrils trying to tease future movies that never happened. Like, so that was supposed to be like Sinister Stick 6 and they were supposed to have the Venom tie-in and... Right, Venom was originally developed as part of that. There was going to be a Black Cat movie. I was bummed because the Sinister Six movie was being developed by Drew Goddard, who, when that fell apart, made Bad Times at the El Royale instead. Like, Drew Goddard has yet to make a movie I don't like. He also directed The Good Place pilot, which is pretty great. Which is a great show. Thanks for giving me that one, Will. (laughs) It sounds like these people are incredibly mediocre. (laughs) Oh, well, here's the deal. The Amazing Spider-Man franchise falls apart. So then instead, uh, they are hired by Universal, where Universal is giving over like a whole floor of their building. They're going to repaint it, theme it, buy a bunch of decorations around their next big thing, the Dark Universe. My favorite franchise that never was. It's worth noting, Kurtzman not only wrote The Mummy, he directed it. Oh, yikes. Today, they are no longer working together. Kurtzman is in charge of the Star Trek franchise, and Roberto Orsi is a 9-11 truther. (laughs) Oh my god. That is dark yeah but like those are guys where from like 2008 to 2014 they got attached to like every high profile project not overseen by disney wow and most of them were terrible there are a couple i love this movie i love the 09 star trek the rest of those are not good (laughs) yeah they're a lot of really mediocre movies a couple good ones and mostly bad ones but it's a lot of movies and somehow they keep getting to make movies yeah yeah Kurtzman is the co-showrunner of Star Trek Discovery, which I'm told is good, but who has CBS All Access? Not me. I don't know anyone that has CBS All Access. I think I might know one person 
solely to watch Star Trek Discovery. Right. It feels like the kind of thing that I would like get a free month trial, binge all of that, and then cancel. But I like if I really want to watch it, I'll just like buy DVDs. Don't forget The Good Fight is also on CBS, which is also supposed to be really good. Right. It apparently rules. I mean, as a Good Wife fan, I do want to watch The Good Fight, but... I, I ain't paying for CBS All Access. All right. Since Orsi brought us to conspiracy theorists, should we talk about the music of this movie? Yeah, I love this soundtrack. <laughs> this series had Danny Elfman, then Hans Zimmer, then Michael Giacchino do their music, which is quite a heavy hitter run. Yeah, it's great. But it's worth noting, too, that the first three movies in the franchise all also had as their credit song a reimagination of the Mission Impossible theme from the TV series by a hip now artist. In the first one, it's U2. The second one is Limp Bizkit. And the credit song for this movie, simply titled Impossible, is done by alleged presidential candidate Kanye West. Oh, I didn't realize that. I saw that the last song was called Impossible. And in my head, all I could hear is Whitney Houston singing Impossible from the... (laughs) wonderful world of disney version of cinderella from the late 90s a thing i have seen many times (laughs) it's great it's maybe the best cinderella out there it kills me that the original version of rogers and hammerstein's cinderella was not a stage production it was a two-night like live tv event starring julie andrews as cinderella like i said they filmed it live and they did not record it that was dumb That sounds amazing. But like, that's the era from before most TV was recorded. It was just live and then it didn't exist anymore. But I would love to watch that because I like that show. Yeah, the uh, the Mission Impossible theme song, I really like. And I actually used it in one of my classes. So I used to teach in Memphis. And one day for my American history uh, honor students, we had an extra day. And I said, you know what? We're going to talk about spies. So I did like a one-off on the CIA and some of the things they were doing during the Cold War. And I started it with, the mis- like I started class with the Mission Impossible theme song and one kid like was speechless because he he like just enjoyed that lesson so much. That's a weird thing where like I remember growing up like even if you've never seen a Mission Impossible thing that is a theme you know. Absolutely. With the fuse and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's up there with the James Bond theme for sure. I think it's more iconic than the Bond theme. Bond had the video games helping it out, but I certainly knew the Mission Impossible one better. I think that also might depend on like your household too. Sure. I think what it really depends on is what you play in sixth grade band class. I think I played the James Bond theme song in sixth grade band. <laughs> oh, we played a very simple arrangement of the Pirates of the Caribbean theme. We did that too. <laughs> Ooh, so cool and hip. Much like Kanye West doing an impossible credit song. Absolutely. So this movie premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival on April 26, 2006. And it opened the next weekend on May 5th with what was then the fourth highest opening screen count ever at over 4,000 screens. And it opened in first, made $47 million its opening weekend, finished at $134 million domestic, which is a substantial drop from the box office of Mission Impossible 2 to the point that like to this day Mission Impossible 3 is the lowest box office for the franchise and later that summer of 2006 Paramount announced they were ending their partnership with Tom Cruise. It's like they had been producing movies together for 10 years and they were like we're done here. It kind of makes sense that this one didn't do as well because of how bad Mission Impossible 2 was. And you combine that with Tom Cruise's public reputation at the time which is dismal 
and people did not turn out. And then what happens is starting with Ghost Protocol, they no longer advertise Tom Cruise is a cool movie star. They advertise Tom Cruise is a lunatic who's actually doing these stunts. Don't you want to see that happen? And everyone says yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm aboard for that. I'm on for that. And this was the last non-superhero movie to get the summer started. Right. I mean, we talked on our Spider-Man 3 episode about how starting there every first Friday of May is a superhero movie. Until starting with Captain America, the Winter Soldier, Marvel occasionally moves it back to April. And then they did that dumb thing with Endgame where they pretended it was going to come out in May. And then they were like, no, yeah, we're putting it in April. And everyone's like, yeah, we knew you were going to do that. There's nothing coming out that weekend. <laughs> and now movies are dead. <laughs> no, they're not dead. You can watch Artemis Fowl on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> You shouldn't. We've discussed it multiple times. <laughs> Still don't get why you subjected yourself to that. I just had to know. Actually, as of today, Warner Brothers has pulled Tenet from the schedule, so there's really, like, nothing to talk about. Except that... To date, The New Mutants is still on the release schedule. Oh, when is that scheduled for release? Uh, August 28th, I think. Cool. That one might stay there just to justify how bad it does. They put out a trailer. They're doing a panel at Comic-Con Online this year where they got some of the cast together, which will be nice for that cast because they haven't seen each other in like four years. And they put out a trailer that does not have a release date on it, but does have the tagline, nothing can stop the new mutants, which feels a little ironic. So many things have stopped the new mutants. Yeah. That's one of those insane stories where the trailer was coming out on Friday the 13th of October. So they were like, to be fun and in the spirit of things, we'll put a horror-themed trailer for this mostly high school movie. And then the internet was like, yes, horror X-Men. And they said, whoopsie, could you please make this movie a horror movie? I'm never going to watch that movie. Let's be real. I am going to watch the crap out of that movie and remember that it was supposed to be the start of a trilogy. Yeah, I don't see that happening. Oh, you think? <laughs> probably not it's weird how like josh boone the director there were other jobs that he got based on getting the new mutants and like those things have already come out but it's still coming uh, out in august <laughs> allegedly so should we start talking about the romance of mission impossible 3 yeah let's do it i love this movie so every week we break down the romantic plot line of a movie into five points that help us get through everything that's important so that we don't waste time running down rabbit holes uh, so tim as our guest you are in charge of the romance here yeah. So I wanted to follow the romance uh, chronologically rather than starting with the way the movie starts because it is misleading as you watch the movie. Um, so we're going to start with the, point number one is the engagement party. First of all, no one was ever good enough for Julia. Oh, here we go. Not spontaneous enough. Adventurous enough. Funny. You know what? No, that's not true. You make it sound like I've never dated. No one we liked. So uh, Julia and Ethan are engaged. This is, of course, Ethan Hunt, played by Tom Cruise, and Julia, played by my girlfriend, Michelle Monaghan. Yes, congratulations. But she's engaged. In the movie, she's engaged, Tim. Do you understand how movies work? Yes. Do you understand how being girlfriend and boyfriend work? Yeah, she listened to our Maid of Honor episode, liked it, got in touch, and now we're dating. That's very quick. Uh, almost. That was like two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. So, yeah, they're having this bump and party. And we get a lot of backstory uh, with Julia and their relationship. There are so many people with just kind of the situation we find ourselves. I always acknowledge that there are a lot of people in that room and they're very close to each other. But everybody's having a good time, including the dog. He's eating some things he probably shouldn't be. It's worth noting at this party, we learned that Ethan Hunt's parents are dead, which was not the case in the first Mission Impossible movie. Right. What happened to them? I don't, they got killed off screen somewhere. That's dark. 
<laughs> Maybe it's a Frasier situation where in Cheers he says his parents are dead and then they have to somehow justify that in Frasier when Sam comes to visit. Yeah. And Sam's like, didn't you say your father was dead? And, and then Frasier's like, yes, but John Mahoney agreed to be in our show and we had to put him somewhere. <laughs> yeah, so they're having this engagement party. Ethan allegedly studies traffic for the Virginia Department of Transportation. Which he does a really good job selling as interesting. Yeah, because he's still doing the Tom Cruise thing where he's like, anything I am talking about is the most fascinating thing that has ever existed. Yeah, it's like an organism, he says. Traffic has a memory. Much like we learned in Frozen 2, snow has a memory. Right, water has memories too. Water and traffic both have memories. What a weird movie. <laughs> also, side note, they definitely should have called Frozen 2, two uh, like uh, something along the lines of... What, two fro, two zen? That doesn't work, Tim. Two frozen, two flurious. That would have been All a right. great title for the movie. <laughs> so we got an engagement party. Yeah. Ethan's marrying Julia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so while Tom's, uh, Ethan's being a great host, he uh, gets a call and uh, he says he has to go get ice after throwing the ice out because he needs to get pulled back into the field. Right. His buddy Billy Crudup has come to tell him that Carrie Russell has been kidnapped while trying to track down terrorist leader Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. And he, he says he doesn't want to go, but he accepts the mission briefing in the, the fancy IMF style of things that spontaneously combust and he gets a disposable camera which disposes okay. of itself okay it's time to talk about imf things that blow up when you get the message because it's always cool in the movies uh-huh but part of the promotional campaign for mission impossible 3 paramount paid all over los angeles for little audio devices to be placed in la times newspaper boxes so that when you open it it plays the mission impossible theme like you're getting the message to start a mission Sounds cool, except that they didn't attach them very well to the newspaper boxes. Oh, so people walked past newspaper boxes and they saw little devices with wires connected to the doors of the newspaper boxes and thought they were bombs. Oh, Understandably God. so. God. I'm glad those didn't self-destruct after five seconds. So Paramount responded by leaving them in the newspaper boxes until the movie came out. They stuck to it. <laughs> well, they already sank their money into it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and like, It's not like you get good PR out of like, paramount got rid of their things that look like bombs right <laughs> uh i have to say this movie loves they have two we'll get to the second one later but they have two incredibly stereotypical men going back to work in intimate situations with their woman like the first one is him laying in bed with her naked and the next one is him like on a roof you know, it's just like, men love to tearfully go back to work after romantic gestures, don't they? That is what I'm learning from movies. Okay, so Tim, are, are we on point two now? Yeah, we're getting to the second point. So that when he's in bed, he says he doesn't want to go to the mission. He then watches the briefing anyways. The camera disposes of itself. And then he goes to sleep that night. And he wakes up suddenly to tell Julia that the office called and he has to travel for work, which as an employee, supposedly of the Department of Transportation, they totally could have given him a job that would have actual emergencies. He says they need to send him to a conference in Texas. Right, because that is urgent. <laughs> so ready to one. At some point, we gotta go over this whole getting married thing. Negative observer. I don't respect you nearly enough to have that conversation. You may not respect me, but for now, you're stuck with my voice in your head. So this girl, what the hell do you see in her anyway? Who are you again? You've never met her. Yeah, and the way things are, I probably never will. 
so we find out more about Ethan's job at that point. He had left the field and he's training agents. So this this rescue mission is to save one of the agents that he had trained. Lindsay. Lindsay Ferris, played by Carrie Russell. Right. One of the things that I like here is the Mission Impossible movies do a great job of something we've talked about a bunch here, where the action sequences of these movies, especially the best action sequences, really serve to do a great job of illuminating character and advancing story. We don't see a lot of Lindsay Ferris, see Mark's complaint that she was underused, Mm -hmm. but... When we see the two of them fight together during the rescue mission, we immediately understand how intimate their relationship is. The way that they clearly trust each other, the way that they fight in sync with one another, it is using choreography to describe character relationships. And I think the movie does that extraordinarily well. Yeah, and they have that little back and forth when they're they're running out of bullets and Ethan has one. She says, uh, how many do you have? He says, enough. And then he shoots the guy and he's like, now I'm out. It shows their relationship through the way in which they interact with each other in that high stress situation. One of the unfortunate things about this movie is that as much as I love it, as much as I think it's a great movie, it drives its plot through fridging and damseling nearly every female character in the movie. Yeah, the only one is Maggie Q who avoids that. Right. Whereas like even Philip Seymour Hoffman's translator gets brutally murdered. Lindsay Ferris is fridged to give Ethan Hunt motivation. It's interesting watching this and comparing it to a later movie like Fallout because Christopher McQuarrie, who first gets to know Tom Cruise when McQuarrie is a writer and has directed a bunch of his later movies, including Rogue Nation and Fallout. McQuarrie's talked a bunch about how when he was a writer on Edge of Tomorrow, Emily Blunt talked a bunch to him and to Tom Cruise about like why it is problematic to damsel your female characters. And McQuarrie's talked a lot about how Emily Blunt did a lot of work convincing them, and in McQuarrie's later movies, like the later Mission Impossible movies, they make a real effort not to do that. Thank God for Emily Blunt. Yes, yet another reason. Thank God for Emily Blunt. Yeah, so that that mission is going, it seems like it's going well. They destroy a helicopter with a windmill, which was pretty cool. But ultimately, as you mentioned, uh, Lindsay doesn't make it, and that we get this nasal bomb thing that becomes a, a, a real present danger for the rest of the movie that... I believe it's called a clear and present danger. It was pretty clear. That's true, too. It was present. It was real. It was up their noses. Oh, this rescuing Carrie Russell is the scene where they have, like, a vascular identity confirmed or something on screen. And I was yeah, like, great. F- that. That's so fake. And I looked it up, and apparently it's a thing that they are still trying to develop. What? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, they have some cool gadgets and cool gears in this movie. Science the sciencey science, Mark. Yeah, I think Mission Impossible is one of the series that tries to kind of make things that are in development real now instead of trying to create things whole cloth. Right, because the IMF is like one degree beyond us. Right. Yeah, so uh, so unfortunately, Lindsay dies when the bomb goes off in her head. And uh, when Ethan gets back home... Julia asks how the conference went, and Ethan says fine, but there's very clear tension there. He's distant. Yes, he's very distant. She clearly doesn't believe him. And then we get a little bit more information about their relationship and why Ethan was taking this so hard. And understandably would have been very confusing for Julia that her fiancé came back from a traffic conference like his little sister had died. Because that's effectively what happened. So I think that takes us to point number three then. Yeah, point number three. The hospital... Am I ever going to be able to understand what this is? I need you to trust me. Yes. I trust you. 
So to Mark's point about talking about important romantic relationships on the roof, another Department of Transportation conference thing apparently comes up and he needs to go away for two days. So Ethan goes to the hospital to talk to Julia, who is a nurse. And Julia thinks that Ethan is kind of getting cold feet or there's something going on. So she, she knows that he's hiding something from her. She's like, tell me it's real. Prove it to me. And Tom Cruise does that. And Ethan and Julia get married in the hospital chapel. It's not even the hospital chapel. It's just a room in the hospital with was the it? hospital chaplain there. Oh, the chaplain was there. Okay. There are beds in that room. Yeah, it was very strange. There was like a cabinet of medical supplies just in the frame. Yeah, I wrote chapel down and then had to cross it out. Oh, I didn't notice that. I did notice when they consummate their wedding that they're in a supply closet and they do it on some scrubs. I like to think that Julie's like, hey, I saw this on an episode of Grey's Anatomy. Like, <laughs> yeah, I could believe that. I am a little worried about those scrubs and I hope that they disposed or washed of them before they uh, were worn. Yeah, be safe with fluids, guys. <laughs> All right, so that was point three. All right, cruising. <laughs> yeah. Then like immediately after that, she gets kidnapped by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Yeah, so they're going to break into the Vatican, which was interesting. They're the classic Mission Impossible scene where he's dangling from the wire. And so we get more into the the plot with uh, the rabbit's foot, and we never find out what that is going to be. No, it's a perfect MacGuffin. Right, exactly. It just set him off. And so when Ethan gets it, he uh, is then threatening Damien, this super bad arms dealer, and he threatens Julia, basically saying, if there's anybody you love, I'm going to kill them. And unfortunately, when Ethan then threatens to throw Damien, Philip Seymour Hoffman, out of the plane, Ving Rhame shouts at Ethan to stop, which then gives Damien his name. Right, Luther done messed up. Well, also, Ethan should not have been dangling the guy out of plane. Also true. Also, also true. <laughs> Damien was in league with the head of the IMF, so I think he yeah. could have found out Ethan. He, he could have found it out, but this is true. So Billy Crudup's evil plan is like the premise of the TV show The Blacklist, right? I don't really get what his idea was. So basically, his plan is to use Damien to find other bad people and take them out. But basically, allow Damien to have access to nuclear weapons at the same time it seems like his plan is like damien gets to do whatever he wants but i use his intel to take out other people yeah which is a bad plan right it does not work out well for him it is interesting the way that like this is very clearly a like second half of the bush administration movie where the bad guy billy crudup is the guy who's talking about like yeah we're gonna go in like blow things up and you know what happens democracy yeah democracy wins infrastructure whereas like four years earlier that would have been the good guy right america so I guess this, this fourth point is really the threat posed to Julia by Damien because of the, the mission. I'm going to find her, whoever she is. I'm going to find her and I'm going to hurt her. You were apprehended carrying details of the location of something codenamed the rabbit's foot. I'm going to make her bleed and cry and call out your name. And you're not going to be able to do shit. You know why? What is a rabbit's foot? Because you're going to be this close to dead. And so... uh Eventually, Damien gets freed. He is- On the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. Right. Yeah. Which means that they must have flown into Dover, like Air Force Base, because there's not a commercial airport between Europe and Virginia where you would have to cross the Bay Bridge. Maybe they took a boat. (laughs) A boat from the Vatican. Ooh, that'd be a long boat. So anyway, yeah, Damien, he kidnaps Julia, then they kidnap Tom Cruise, and then uh, this is the first scene of the movie. Right, right. So this interrogation scene- 
Davian has Julia and Ethan across from each other, and he's counting to 10. And he wants to know where the rabbit foot is. Ethan's like, I can't tell you where the rabbit's foot is. He's like, I gave it I gave it to you. And then he, he, he tries to get him out of there. Uh, he, he does not tell him where the rabbit's foot is. And then Damien shoots Julia. Yeah, and I'm like, oh my gosh! Which was very hard for me to watch in particular, because I hate to see Michelle get hurt like that. Yeah, I'm sure it hit real close to home for you. And then plot twist, not Julia. It was... The translator who had failed Philip Seymour Hoffman at the Vatican. And so she got her comeuppance and got fired in a very literal sense. She got fired at. Yep. Yep. So it turns out it wasn't Julia. Woof. So then Ethan has to go rescue Julia, which is point number five. Right. Yeah. The rescue. I have a charge in my head. I'm going to die unless you kill me. What? Throw the switch on and off. Don't forget the off. I can't do that. You can bring me back. I'll come back. You have to! There's no time! Now! So he has to go and rescue her, and he had been implanted with the explosive in his head as well, which, side note, Tom Cruise had, like, not liked the way the actor was putting the gun up to his nose or whatever, so it's actually Tom Cruise's hand using the gun on himself. Unsurprising. And then also, when when he escapes, he bites his own hand. It was his own hand holding the phone, too. And so... Because he didn't like the way it was pressed against his nose, it ends up where he bites his own hand. He does his own stunts and apparently other people's stunts. Yeah, <laughs> he needs more stunts. So he goes and he manages to find Julia with Simon Pegg's help, which is uh, eventually becomes another trope of Mission Impossible movies where... Or Benji tells him where to run. Yeah, Benji tells him where to run. And they play that really nicely a few other times. Nobody runs like Tom Cruise does. Right, he's a good runner. He's unbelievable. The best thing is in Fallout, when he's running faster than any humans ever run, and Benji's like, you have to go faster, and you're like, nobody can run faster, and then he runs faster. He just puts in maximum effort right there. We need a movie where he has a race against Cynthia Erivo in Widows. Another perfect runner. Yeah, she's incredible. So when he gets to Julia, finally, he's going to use the same technique he was trying to use earlier to uh, shock himself to disable this explosive device, which means that it would stay in his head too, which is kind of weird. Yeah, so in all the other movies, is he just hanging out with that in his head or did they extract it between this and Ghost Protocol? Yeah, I don't know. It might've been up there for a while. They don't really address it. Would be real problematic if he went to get an MRI. They do not address, so I, I cannot I assume it's still up there. It's just dead. It feels like the kind of thing McQuarrie could conceivably bring back. Like he is into the lore of this franchise. Henry Zerny, the boss from one, is coming back in seven. That's kind of fun. I'm so excited. I kind of like that Julie is the one that gets to shoot the head of the IMF. Bang, bang, bang. Yes. She shoots Billy Crudup. And then they leave the building and they have a nice walk through Shanghai together. Right. As as he explains what his job actually is, which is in, she, he's, she's basically, why are we in Shanghai right now? I work for the Impossible Mission Force. The worst name. It's such a bad name. It is an unbelievably <laughs> terrible name. And I think that's, <laughs> like, the point at this point. It's so funny how bad their name is. Especially when, like, oh, we keep bringing it back to Fallout because that movie rules. But the fact that in Fallout, we are actively dealing with the CIA also existing. Yeah. Also, I just checked, and the International Monetary Fund was founded in 1945, so it does predate the TV series. Yeah, the IMF has been around for a long time. And longer than the 60s TV show that created the Impossible Mission Force. Yeah, how do you think that went down? Like, hey, we have this actual entity that has the same initials. Should we change it? No. Yeah, do you think the IMF ever sued the Mission Impossible TV show? I kind of doubt it. So... Uh, this movie is not a romance, and it has more than I remembered, but still not much. But do we find the romance between Ethan Hunt and Julia? 
to be believable. It is one of the most stereotypical romances. Outrageously so. Outrageously trope-ridden. So let's walk through it. So they are engaged at the start of the movie. He lies to her to do his job in secret. To reassure her about their relationship, he marries her in a random room of the hospital with other nurses as witnesses. We don't even see the discussion where they decide to do that without any of her family present. Right. They then have sex in the hospital. He leaves. Both of them get kidnapped and threatened with murder. He rescues her, makes her kind of kill him by throwing the electrical switch. She definitely kills the him. Bomb. It's not a yeah, kind of. She dies. The bomb and it's the right. She has to bring him back with CPR. And then they shoot their way out and have a nice walk. So do we find this believable? Uh, not really. No. Not terribly. I even feel like it would be up if we saw the conversation where they decided to get married in that moment. Yeah, I think if we saw that, we could add some points to this, but... It would also give us a big window into their decision-making process as a couple, because we see none of that. It sounds like they don't have one. Yeah, that seems right. (laughs) And throughout the movie, we have Luther Stickle telling Ethan, like, you cannot be in a relationship and have this job. It just does not work. Which, spoilers, is true. Even in this franchise, it's true. Right, yeah. By the time Ghost Protocol happens... Ethan and Julia are separated, but he, like, keeps an eye on her to make sure that she's not dying. And, like, mercifully not in a creepy way. Like, he doesn't get in the way of her having other relationships. Right, yeah, she gets married. Again. Hopefully in a more understandable or more realistic setting than random hospital room. Well, she's with a doctor in Fallout, so... Oh, that's right. He is a doctor. Could be a random hospital room, then. Yeah. Every week we rate the believability of a movie's romance on a 10-point scale from 0 to 10. So, Tim, where would you rate the believability of the Mission Impossible 3 romance? So, I'm going to give it credit for I definitely would agree that if my significant other allegedly worked for the Department of Transportation and then had an emergency conference, I would be suspicious. Like, that makes sense. Uh, Sure. I'm thinking like a two or a three. That's a little... I was thinking like a four. Okay, I'll go with a three. I'm going to go with a three. The spontaneous wedding is hard for me. Yeah, I think it would be higher for me if we saw more of their conversation other than Lake Wanaka and them not trusting each other. They are really cute together at the party. They are very cute. There are some very tender moments when they're dancing together. Despite the fact that Tom Cruise is 14 years older than Michelle Monaghan. He doesn't look 14 years older, I'd say. No, I mean, it's the weird thing where, like, again, the guy is a lunatic who does a lot of outrageous things. That is true. He has aged well. Yeah, I think, like, a three feels right to me. Do you guys think that Ethan or Julia is dateable? Ethan, absolutely not. Yeah. Julia, I I would date Julia. Julia seems very dateable. The biggest mark against her is the spontaneous wedding and then banging in the hospital. I mean, if I've learned anything from TV is every hospital has a room that is just designated for banging. Now, if you had to pick one person in the movie to date, Tim, who would it be? I think it would be Julia. So I hope you're okay with that answer. Again, Tim, I understand that Julia is a fictional character. I don't feel threatened by you saying that. Okay. I'm glad you understand how movies work. Every other character works for the impossible mission force. So I'm going to have to go with Julia as well, because I do not want to date anyone in the impossible mission force. I'm not going to say Julia just because, like, it would be boring for me to say that because of my external relationships. So I'm going to say that I would like to date Benji, played by Simon Pegg, who is really smart and a pretty fun guy, even if he's a little high strung and crucially not a field agent. Yeah. He also, he knows his worth, which is important. Yeah. I like Benji a lot. All right. I, I support that. I mean, we kind of know the answer from future movies, but based off of this one alone, do you think Ethan and Julia would stay together? I still don't think so, and I think the movie is telling us that repeatedly through the vessel yeah. of Ving Rhames. Luther I, emphasizes it. I think Luther has a lot of points that he makes that are good points. But 
that said, I don't begrudge the movie for doing this storyline, especially after Mission Impossible 2 makes the mistake of trying to be way too horny. All right. So a lot of movies that we cover are made into stage musicals. Do you think they should make a Mission Impossible 3 specifically stage musical? I think Mission Impossible 3 specifically would be tough to do as a musical. I think the franchise is so anchored to like crazy stunts that it would be hard to do well. And as we learned from Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, hard to do safely on a stage. Right, I was thinking about <laughs> I agree. Too. I think someone would die if they tried to make a Mission Impossible musical. Right, and we don't need that because we have the movies. Would Tom Cruise die if they tried to make a Mission Impossible musical? No, Tom Cruise has been in musicals. He was in Rock of Ages. He would play Ethan Hunt every night. He would do eight shows a week. He would jump off the grid with no protective gear just to make a point. (laughs) All right, I think that's about it. We've covered a lot of Mission Impossible 3. We've talked a lot. It's been fun. I love this movie. Unfortunately, next week we are talking about the single worst movie we've ever discussed on this podcast. The 2015 feature, Hot Tub Time Machine 2. Oh, boy. In no world should you watch the movie, but you should listen to the episode because it's very fun. It's we a already fun recorded that one. I cannot stress strongly enough, do not watch this movie. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod. You can always email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help other people to find the show. All right, Tim, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from Mission Impossible 3? I think that it would be very helpful for a relationship if I could learn to read lips. Ooh, that's a good pull. Yeah. Yeah. I was racking my brain for one, but I think that it would help with communication and as seen in the movie eavesdropping as well. But I think it'd be very helpful to be able to actually make sure I understand what my uh, significant other is trying to say with her words. All I can say, bang in a hospital. Yeah, I mean, it worked for them. I was going to say, be friendly with your significant other's family, because Ethan does a great job of joking around with Julia's people. Yeah, that was good, too. He's a great host. He's a great host. He knows how to throw a party. I feel like Tom Cruise would throw a good party, too. Absolutely. I think that was just Tom Cruise throwing a party. I feel like the IMF probably trains you how to throw a good party. Seems like something a spy should know how to do for some reason. There's a little part of me that always thinks Tom Cruise is like the living embodiment. I think this about Jimmy Fallon too, actually, which is weird. That they are the living embodiment of Adam Scott in Party Down shouting, Are we having fun yet? (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) there you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. 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 Bye.